1: All right, tonight we're going to be studying, um, as we continue our study in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. By the way, um, uh, somebody asked me, Augusta, actually, uh, who Wayne Grudem is. Um, he actually is a janitor at McDonald's who just likes, you know, he just enjoys, you know, this kind of thing. Came across his book and just just kidding. No, that's not true. Um, at, the, at the very, very back, last page, page 13 at the bottom are his credentials, what he does. Uh, the bi- bibliographical information on the book we're studying, uh, which is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology and Introduction to Biblical Doctrine by Grand—I mean Zondervan, Grand Rapids, etc. Grudem himself got a BA from Harvard, which is a, um, a little liberal arts school right down from MIT, just a little down the street. So, um, but anyway, uh, generally reputed to be a good school. Um, M. Div. from Westminster, PhD from Cambridge in England, chairman of the biblical, Department of Biblical and Systematic Theology at Trinity in Deer, Deerfield. Very, very sharp individual, baptistic in his theology. The single volume uh, work is excellent. Uh, it was done in 1994 and uh, it really has become kind of an evangelical standard at this point you know you may wonder why do we need every generation you know another systematic theology there have been so many of them you know folks are not inventing new doctrines we don't have a new bible but every generation needs the same doctrines presented again in language that uh, that generation can understand dealing with issues that that generation is facing that's the that's why these things keep coming out and it wouldn't be like every 20 years you need another one but you don't want to wait hundred years i mean if you read a systematic theology from hundred years ago um, the doctrines are solid and you can read some great ones like Calvin's Institutes and all that. They're timeless if they're well-written, but you still want some godly people who are looking at what's going on in our present age and facing those uh, kind of issues for us and he's done a great job. Okay? Um, let's uh, let's open with prayer. Father, I thank you for this evening, the time we have uh, tonight to study together and uh, as we get into the doctrine of covenants, Lord, what an incredibly rich and deep uh, subject that is and I pray Father, that you would be teaching in and through me, Lord, help me to understand And all of us, um, Lord, how you have related uh, to the human race throughout history. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Did y'all get a, a handout? I got a number of them at the back. All right, we're looking at covenants, the covenants between God and man. What is the issue when we come to covenants? What are we talking about? Well, um, basically, we're talking about what principles determine the way that God relates to us. That's the question that's in front of us. How? Uh, does God relate to us? What principle uh, principles cover that since creation, God has chosen to relate to man in relationship defined by specific requirements and promises, requirements, promises. Those are the two kind of issues. When you come to a covenant requirements or commandments and uh, promises, what comes along with that? All right, God clearly reveals these, these requirements and promises and his relationship with man is governed by these and scripture, scripture often calls these covenants, covenants. God has revealed himself and related to the human race again and again through covenants. Now, how does Grudem define a covenant? A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. OK, it's if you, you take a, a pen and zero in on the keyword, it is an agreement, a covenant's agreement between two or more parties. That's what a covenant is. Well, what's the most common covenant we deal with in everyday life? Marriage. I mean, that's a covenant. It's an agreement between two parties. All right. Um, now, covenants between God and man are different than uh, between one human being and another. Um, we'll get into how they're different, but it's basically an agreement. Now Grudem breaks apart this definition. First of all, it's divinely imposed. A covenant is uh, the covenants we're studying tonight. It's divinely imposed. God did not open up a negotiation table and say, what do you want to do together? I mean, how do you want our relationship to be? He doesn't do that. He dictates the terms of every covenant and you look through all the covenants. It's always God dictating how it's going to be. He is not opening up a negotiation table. He is not inviting us to sit and dicker with him uh, like a lawyer. We'll get our team of lawyers and he'll have his and we'll you know hash it out like the NHL has been doing the last four years or whatever it is. It's not like that. Um, it never will be like that. God basically dictates the uh, covenant to the human race. We accept or we don't. Uh, if we don't, there's certain issues there, but there it is. Uh, God divinely imposes, it's a divine imposition, the covenants. Now, within that, this isn't in your outline, but there there are two kinds of of, um, covenants that we're going to see in scripture. One of them is kind of a unilateral thing in which God basically tells the human race what he is going to do for them or on behalf of them. And there's nothing they need to do about it. There's nothing uh, nothing they need to obey. It's just the way it is. Very good example of that is the covenant he made with Noah after the flood, right? Noah isn't commanded to do anything. He's he's just told, I will never destroy the world by water. Again, I'm making a covenant with you. The rainbow is the sign of the covenant. We'll get to that, all that toward the end. But that is a unilateral, one-way statement of how God will deal with the human race from now on. Another good example is the covenant he made with David. David didn't need to obey anything. He didn't need to do anything. God just basically said, Uh, I will raise up one of your descendants and he will sit on your throne forever and ever. That's just the way it is. There's nothing David needs to obey. That's one category of covenant. Another category of covenant is a kind in which blessings and curses are laid out and based on your obedience, you have the blessings and based on the disobedience, you would have the curses. Very good example of that would be, of course, the covenant he made with Moses. The Mosaic covenant, a good example of that second category. All right. But in, in both cases, note... All of the stipulations of the covenant are coming from God. He is not opening up a negotiation with the human race on how it's going to be. Everything's one way. It's all coming from God. He's telling us what the terms are, divinely imposed. Secondly, it's unchangeable. He doesn't midway through change the stipulations in the Mosaic covenant or the covenant with Noah. Doesn't, you know, a couple years in say, oh, one more thing, you know, or codicil or adding something. It's just unchangeable. Now, covenants may be superseded, A covenant may become obsolete as the old covenant has, the Mosaic covenant and the book of Hebrews calls it obsolete. That may happen, but the Mosaic covenant didn't change. It was superseded. He didn't change anything in the Mosaic covenant. He just superseded it, finished with it. It served its purpose. When Christ came, it wasn't needed anymore. We'll get to that. Um, Also, uh, going over this definition some more, it has to do with the relationship between God and man. And that's the beautiful thing in all of this. The bottom line is that the eternal God, the creator of the ends of the earth, wants a relationship with human beings. He wants to relate to us. Isn't that wonderful? He's chosen to do it through these covenants, but he wants a relationship with us. And so again and again, we see this statement uh, connected with the covenants uh, that God wants to be in relationship with us. Look what he says here in Jeremiah 31. Uh, We'll come back to this later on in our time today, but this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, how many times does God say that? Over and over in the Old Testament. Uh, he says it in Ezekiel. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Again, Second Corinthians 6.16 The apostle Paul writes, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And again, Revelation 21, three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And, and that is, that is huge. I mean, that's Revelation 21. It's a penultimate chapter in the whole Bible. That is, that's where we're all heading. We're heading toward an eternal relationship with Almighty God. That's what these covenants are all about ultimately. Bottom line is that God wants a relationship with the human race and he's doing it through covenants. God will be our God. We will be with him forever. Okay. Now God clearly desires a relationship with man and he has chosen the concept of covenant to describe that relationship. Let me just add a note here. Why covenant? Because I think... That sense of a binding, unchangeable nature of the relationship gives us a sense of his eternal intentions toward us. He's not changing. He's not rearranging the new covenant that we're in now. Uh, It is what it is, and it's never going to change. And, And that gives us security, doesn't it? It gives us a sense of security in a very changeful world that we live in. We have a great sense of security with these covenants. So that's why God has chosen. I've written it down. It's the way it is. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never pass away. There's a sense of security there, isn't there? And that's a beautiful thing. And the same thing with marriage. You know, there's that sense of security in the marriage. Well, how much more than these eternal, this eternal covenant that God is working on? Now, the first covenant I want to talk about is the covenant of works. Covenant of works. By this I mean... God's initial covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now, you will not find the phrase covenant of works anywhere in the Bible. Uh, It's a theological term. It's put together by theologians. Others use other terms. But this is probably the most common phrase or term to describe what we're talking about here. And that is the covenant that God made with Adam in Eden before the fall. We're talking about the covenant that God made describing the relationship between God and Adam before the fall. Now, some people question whether there was such a covenant. They ask uh, because the word is never used in the Genesis account referring to Adam and God. You won't see the word covenant. As a matter of fact, the first time you see the word covenant is God uh, speaking in Genesis 6 to Noah, and he says, I will establish my covenant with you and with those on the ark. That's the first time the word appears. And so they say, based on that, there really wasn't a covenant of works. Uh, that's what they would uh, say by, by the fact the word doesn't appear. Uh, well, there is some biblical evidence, however, for the fact that there was a covenant with Adam, what they call the covenant of works. First, all the elements of a covenant, uh, seem to have been there in the Genesis account. First, we have two parties that are evident as God speaks to Adam and gives commands to him. So there's cer- there's certainly that stance of God dictating to Adam, how it's going to be in their relationship, right? He's telling him what's go- what it's going to be. Also, the requirements or boundaries of the relationship are clearly spelled out, aren't they? Genesis chapter uh, 1 and 2. Genesis 1, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit uh, with seed in it they will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move in the ground everything that has the breath of life in it i give every green plant for food and it was so so that's what he sets up in chapter 1 it's even clearer i think in chapter 2 genesis 2:15 2, through 17 the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and take care of it verse 16 and the lord god commanded the man Uh, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So those are the boundaries of the relationship, the covenant stipulations. Uh, Thirdly, we also have a penalty for disobedience, and that's a common uh, issue in covenants. You know, you've got blessings and curses. Here the curse is death. Genesis 2.17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, You will surely die. So there's the death penalty. And that's exactly what did happen. Death entered the world through the sin of this one man, Adam. And so we have uh, the death penalty um, established as the penalty for disobedience. Also, there is a hint of eternal reward for obedience. I say hint because it's not openly stated, but I think it can be inferred. Uh, If you don't get death, what do you get then? Well, you get life. If you don't get death forever, then you get eternal life. And so therefore there is the hint of a reward for obedience in the covenant of works. And it is eternal life. Genesis 2, 9, it says the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what I would say is one of them is the reward tree. And the other is the probationary tree, the judgment tree, okay? You got to go through the test first and then there's the reward. That's the way I read it, all right? Genesis 3:22 through 24, I think, confirms this. The Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So isn't that an implication that a reward for obedience was eternal life? In the covenant of works, if Adam had obeyed, he would have had eternal life. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. He placed the east side of the garden of Eden in the east side, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You're not getting through. Well, those cherubim are tough. I know they don't look like that in popular art, but they are tough. And with a flaming sword moving back and forth, you are not getting past. But notice in the book of Revelation, there's the tree of life uh, with constant fruit for the healing of the nations. And so it's a beautiful thing that the tree of life reappears uh, in the new heaven, the new earth. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, it's it's amazing to me uh, how un- unified the Bible is, how it truly comes from one mind with one message and how just Genesis and Revelation just so mesh perfectly together. But there, I think we've made a pretty good case for all the basic ingredi- ingredients and the elements of a covenant. They are in place you got the two parties, you got the boundaries of the relationship, you've got the commands, you've got the threatened uh, punishment for disobedience, and you've got, I think, a promise of reward for obedience. The punishment for disobedience was death. The uh, reward for obedience was eternal life. Now, uh, one final, I think, evidence of this covenant is a single verse found in Hosea, and that's Hosea 6 and verse 7. It says, like Adam, they have broken the covenant. That's pretty significant, isn't it? Now, the problem is the Hebrew word Adam can also be translated like man. All right. But most of the English translations go with Adam. And therefore, if Adam is the right way to translate Hosea 6, 7, then Adam broke a covenant. Well, what covenant did he break? Well, it doesn't tell us the name of it. So theologians call it the covenant of works. But this was the relationship he had. Uh, with God. Adam broke the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Therefore, it seems as though there definitely was a covenant between God and Adam. Now, what is this covenant of works? Why do theologians call it the covenant of works? Well, it's so called because Adam's legal status before God was based on his personal obedience. If he obeyed, he gets life. If he disobeys, he gets death and his obedience must be perfect. He can't nibble at the fruit now. Okay. None of that. The moment he eats of it, he's dead. All right. And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Not physically, but that would come. Uh, so perfect obedience. That was the covenant of works. He would be saved by his own works. That's why it's called the covenant of works. Later, Moses would clearly state this principle and we're studying it in the book of Romans as well. Leviticus 18:5, keep my decrees and laws for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Do you see that? The man who obeys will live by them. Isn't that Adam's case? If he obeys, he lives. If he doesn't obey, he dies. So it's called, rightly, I think, the covenant of works. Death is clearly threatened for disobedience and therefore, by analogy, life promised for obedience. The ESV in Romans 7.10 gives us a sense of this life-giving command. Paul says there, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So the commandment was the avenue of life for Adam. Grudem put it this way. In the promise of punishment for disobedience, there is implicit a promise of blessing for obedience. This blessing would consist of not receiving death. And the implication is that the blessing would be the opposite of death. It would, uh, it should be opposite of death. It would involve physical life that would not end and spiritual life in terms of a relationship with God that would go on forever. The presence of the tree of life in the midst of the garden, Genesis 2, 9, also signify the promise of eternal life with God. If Adam and Eve had met the conditions of a covenant relationship Uh, by obeying God completely until he had decided that the time of their testing was finished. Okay? Now, let's talk about that last thing that Grudem brings up. Until he decided that the time of their testing was finished. Now, how would you like to be there forever and ever and ever with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, that seems tough. I mean, forever and ever. And I think most of the theologians speculate, and pretty much from here on, what we're saying about the covenant of works is theological speculation. All right? Um... We know what actually happened. What actually happened in the covenant of works? What happened? He ate the fruit. He did not keep the covenant of works and death entered the human race. We know that. Okay. Theologians speculate as to what would have happened if he had not eaten. And it's interesting how many pages they will write about that. I don't have any idea for sure what would have happened if he had kept the covenant of works. Uh, we can talk about it and we'll in a minute briefly. But uh, at any rate, they do talk a great deal about this. I think one of the first points of speculation is that Adam's time of testing would not go on forever. And frankly, one theologian that I read, who is was my Old Testament hermeneutics professor, Meredith Klein, said that God was going to bring the issue to a head quite quite directly. Basically, the devil was going to come to the tree to be judged by Adam. And if Adam handled that encounter properly, his probation is done He's passed the test and then he would go on into eternal life. I think at that point we could speculate that he would have a perfect resurrection body. If that's what you want to talk about, that's what the speculators do. They tell us what it would have gone like. I don't know what it would have gone like, but they say that he would not have been able to live forever and ever in that body. So he would have instead had some kind of a higher level body that I don't know. But I do like the idea of a climactic encounter with the devil climactic encounter with the devil at the tree. So the tree becomes the issue, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the judgment bar. Adam is the judge. The devil is the accused. He's already fallen. He's already rebelled against God. He's carried with him a third of the angels. They were thrown down uh, to earth. The devil's gone down to earth. He comes into the garden. Remember what it says in Genesis 2.15 that God put Adam in the garden to serve and protect it. That's what the Hebrew words mean. The second word definitely means to guard or protect. And I remember when I was teaching this at a men's retreat, they're like, well, guard or protect from what? Well, you know what, from what? There's a a threat coming. Genesis 2.15 is before the threat comes. And it was the man's job to get out there and protect that beautiful garden and his wonderful wife and the whole world, frankly, from the evil that's coming. He's out there to protect it. Did he do his job? No, he did not. He stands there passively while the devil just seizes control. What does the devil do? The devil, knowing that he's been brought to the tree for judgment, goes on the attack. He gets aggressive. He basically hijacks the process. He he um suborns the court, you know, he uh uh he recruits the judge to join him in his rebellion. And what a horrible tragedy that is. Remember in in Matthew twenty five, uh it says there in the sheep and the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared. What does it say? for the devil and his angels. That's what hell was made for. The reason that we stand in danger of hell is because we joined the devil's rebellion. Do You see, it was for him that God set up the lake of fire, not for us, all right, originally. Not that he didn't know what would happen, but it was for the devil and his angels. That's what the Lord says in Matthew 25. So what does the devil do? Very shrewdly, he goes on the attack and he suborns the whole process and he is not judged at the tree by Adam. God judges him and ultimately will Frankly, I think this interpretation gives an insight into the, into the uh, somewhat mysterious statement that Paul makes. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Right? You know that statement? Well, what angels need judging? Well, those that have fallen, those that are wicked, right? I'm not saying that we don't have some authority over good angels too, but I mean, I think that's what we were originally called to do is to judge an angel, the fallen angel, Satan. But we didn't do it. Adam didn't do it. Instead, we joined his rebellion. So that's what, I, to me, I think that's the climactic moment in the covenant of works and he failed. Adam failed. Uh, God brought the devil to the tree to be judged and he did not get judged by Adam. Instead, Adam got sucked into his rebellion. So at any rate, that was Adam's probation. Uh, Christ, however, fulfilled... Yes, go ahead quickly. Uh,
0: Doesn't pre-will presume that there's always a choice to rebel against God?
1: Yes, I guess it
0: does, yeah. The concept
1: of a probation, the mm-hmm. point where the test is
0: passed irrevocably, doesn't really fit.
1: Well, but it does. Um, I think I don't anticipate that in heaven there's going to be a future possibility of, or of a fall. So I think that the test comes at a certain point.
0: Angels fell in heaven. I would imagine that some of them, at least, still have a choice.
1: Yeah, I don't think I don't see it, I don't see it that way. I think instead you get confirmed in righteousness and are secure. Therefore, we can talk about something like eternal life, and we don't we're not eternally insecure, thinking I could fall ten thousand years from now. Um, I, I look at certain verses where it says, <clears throat> once he died, speaking of Christ, death no longer has mastery over him. He can't touch him anymore. So that means Christ is beyond the test. Once he dies, once he goes to the cross and dies, he can no longer be tempted. He's passed. He's He's succeeded. And so I think there's a confirmation of perfect righteousness. And also remember, our place in heaven is by Christ's perfect righteousness anyway. So we will stop being righteous the day Jesus stops being righteous. And that's never going to happen. So that's the beauty of that. But thank you. That's a good question. I'm glad that I am not kept in heaven by my ongoing free will. Aren't you? I mean, I'm waiting just around the corner. When am I going to fall? I don't know how you could enjoy eternity that way without you know being certain and secure. So I think there is a sense of a confirmed righteousness, the test having been passed, and that's it. So at any rate, but I acknowledge before we got into this that this was somewhat speculative. Um, that's what these folks get paid to do, speculate for us. So we're reading their speculations. One thing though is that there is somebody who passed the covenant of works, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can stand in his own works. He passed the test. He obeyed the law. He did everything perfectly. He took on the covenant of works. And and I wrote this on page four. In one sense, it is absolutely true to say we are not saved by works, since by that we usually mean our own works of obedience to the law of God. That is true. But in one sense, it is also absolutely true to say we are saved by works, if by that we mean Christ's works. I am saved by works. I'm saved by what Jesus did for me. I'm saved by his obedience. I'm saved by what he did at the cross. I am saved by works. They're just not my works. Praise God for that. So I stand under that uh, perfect act of righteousness. Romans 5, 18 and 19 kind of focuses specifically on one act of righteousness, which I think definitely is Christ's death on the cross. His willingness to drink the cup of wrath on our behalf, one act of righteousness. So it says, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. What's the one trespass he's referring to? It's got to be Adam. What's the one act of righteousness? It's got to be Jesus at the cross. Jesus drank the cup. Remember Gethsemane. Isn't it incredible? I just think Gethsemane is one of the most incredible things ever, that Jesus does not shrink back from drinking the cup of God's wrath, but freely and gladly chooses to bear my sin and yours. What an incredible thing. I think without question, the most courageous thing any human being has ever done, ever is that Jesus, it was revealed to him in Gethsemane what he was about to do, and he did not, he did not fail to do it, but he took that cup for us. Praise God for that. One act of righteousness, verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So what Sean said, I'll tell you this, forever and ever and ever, we stand in somebody else's righteousness. <clears throat> and I like that saying that uh, we have come to, that uh, when Jesus stops being righteous, then we will too. Uh, until then, uh, we will, we will, uh, we're secure. We're secure in Christ's righteousness. Uh, third, uh, third point. Christ's perfect act of righteousness at the cross has bestowed a confirmed righteousness on us. We get his righteousness. And that confirmed righteousness was lived out in over 30 years of Christ's perfect obedience to the law of God while he lived in the flesh on the earth. Jesus was weaving a beautiful robe of righteousness and then he hands it to us as a gift. Here, put this on. This will stand you in good stead on Judgment Day. You'll need it. Okay. So we just put on that beautiful robe of righteousness uh, woven through Christ, 30 plus years of perfect obedience to his heavenly father. Isn't that wonderful? You know, I've wondered before, you know, why didn't Jesus just come down and die? Right. Why go through 30 plus years just living a baby, growing up age 12 in the temple and all that. He wanted to live. God wanted him to live a perfect life of human righteousness under the laws of God so that we would have that righteousness to step up into. Not just that he would be our example, I need more than an example, don't you? I mean, I really do. Actually, that would be devastating if all we got from Christ was example, right? I need his righteousness. I don't need just his example. I don't need him just saying, why can't you be like me? Be perfect like me. Never get angry. Never never have a lust thought. Never, be, never, never sin or break any command at all, ever. Oh, I need better than that, <laughs> okay? Uh, that's a higher level even than the law of Moses, and I can't live under that. Uh, we get from Jesus more than just example, don't we? We get actually his performance. We get his righteousness given to us as a gift. Oh, that's sweet. I like, that makes me actually look forward to Judgment Day when I will get to stand under a perfect righteousness that's not my own. I'll get to see how beautiful it looks because I can't see it now except by faith. But on that day, I will see just how beautiful is the robe I stand in. It's not mine. It's Christ. All right, that's the first covenant. What is it? Covenant of what? Works. Covenant of works. Second covenant is the covenant of redemption. Uh, Grudem organized it this way. Others organize it differently. So if you're going to read a different systematic theology, they would talk about different other covenants in different categories. Some would especially not want to put the Mosaic covenant under the covenant of redemption. But I see the logic to it. Basically, anything that God does in general with the sinful human race that points toward getting people saved is part of the covenant of redemption, right? And that's what God is working, uh, covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. I'm sorry, I'm confusing the terms, but covenant of grace covenant of redemption is the eternal covenant in the heavens between members of the Trinity. This, by the way, is another, how shall I say, speculative covenant that the theologians uh, talk about between members of the Trinity before the foundation of the world. They say that basically there was an agreement from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to save people. And it was done before the foundation of the world. Um... So uh, like the covenant of works, it's extracted from scripture by inference rather than by clear textual evidence, which uses the word covenant. Basic concept is before the foundation of the world, there was an agreement between the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit concerning our salvation. The father has a role, the son has a role, and the spirit has a role in the covenant of redemption. First, the father's role is he agreed to give to the son a people whom he would redeem for his own possession. Uh, you get this again and again, this given language, gave, the Father gave me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, John 6. So there are these people that the Father's given to the Son. John 17, 1, 2, and 6, uh, probably some of the greatest verses on this. This is Jesus' wonderful high priestly prayer. And he says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. See that? So he's got authority over everybody uh, and he's going to give eternal life to those whom the father had given him. Verse six, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. You see that? So there are these people that the Father gave to the Son out of the world. The, the Greek is ek, it's out of, this, out of the world. We are not of the world, we belong to Him. If we belong to the world, the world would love us as it loves its own, but we don't belong to the world. We are Jesus's and we were given as a love gift from the Father to the Son. You know, if you ever struggle for significance, if you're struggling on self-esteem, can I urge you to not look inward and look at yourself? Look to this. You were a love gift from the father to the son, if you're a Christian. Isn't that marvelous? It's like, well, not much of a gift, really, if he knew me and knew what. But you don't see yourself right. You don't, and neither do I. We're not finished yet. He's not done saving us. Someday we're going to be as glorious. We're going to shine like the sun. The righteous are going to shine like the sun. Look what he will do with us. And so you are, if you're a Christian, you are a love gift from the father to the son find your significance in that find your joy in that and when did the giving occur well i believe it occurred before the foundation of the world you know i I think ephesians 1 teaches this romans 9 teaches the giving occurred then you gave him those out of the out of the world and they obeyed your word he says he says in another place all that the father gives me will come to me all right that is such a vital verse you know what that means The giving precedes the coming. So the father gave before you ever came. And therefore we have this kind of teaching. We love because he first loved us. And we cannot extend it to say things like we come because he first gave us. And that's a beautiful thing. The father has given some to the son and they're going to come. How many of them are going to come? Well, Jesus said all, all that the father gives me will come to me. It's a beautiful thing. So first act that the father does is he gives people to the son. Secondly, he agreed to send the son into the world as his representative to be also their representative. Thirdly, he agreed to prepare a body for his son in which he, the son, would dwell as a man. So he's going to give him a body, a human body. It says in scripture, a body you prepared for me. So the father gave a body to his son, human body. Fourth, he agreed to accept the son as representative mediator of the people whom he had redeemed and to accept the death of his son on their behalf as an atoning sacrifice or propitiation for their sins. He agreed to do this. He said, your death, your bloody death, the pouring out of your blood, I will accept for their sins. Now you can easily see how he wouldn't do that, but he has chosen to do that. It says in Leviticus, we've been studying in the book of Hebrews without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, right? Well, it says in Leviticus, I, do not eat the blood, speaking of the Jews, because I have given it to you to make atonement for your sins. Well, when did he do that? I say before the foundation of the world, he had figured out blood sacrifice. I mean, what's the very first thing that God does to cover up the nakedness of Adam and Eve? He kills some animals, right? What's the first problem between, between Cain and Abel? It's on the issue of animal sacrifice. Remember, animal sacrifice wasn't just some extra thing, oh, you know, like some pagan religions came up with it and then Moses started using it. It was right from the beginning there would be this idea of blood sacrifice. Where did that come from? I contend the plan had been established between the father and the son before the foundation of the world. It says of Jesus that he is the lamb slain from the creation of the world. He was dead before the world began in the mind of God and in his own mind, he knew he would die. And so think of that, think of having to think of that forever. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm gonna, through all the ages, through Noah, the flood of Noah, through the call of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through all that stuff. I'm going every time one of the Levitical priests offered up an animal. Jesus is like, that's me someday when, when in the fullness of time I come in, I will die and my blood will be shed. So at any rate, before the foundation of the world, this idea of blood sacrifice had been established, Uh propitiation fifth. He agreed to raise his son from the dead by his own power. I'm not going to leave you dead. (laughs) I'm going to raise you up. You remember what Jesus said right before he died? Father, what does he say into your hands? I commit my spirit. So, He says, here, (laughs) take care of me. And not just his spirit, but his body, Psalm 16, you will not leave me in the grave or let your Holy One see decay. So he committed that he would raise his son from the dead by his own power. Uh, He also agreed to give his son all authority in heaven and earth to accomplish this purpose. All authority in heaven and earth has been what? Has been given to me. Well, the father agreed to do that before the foundation of the world. And so all authority is Jesus's, including the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit on his people. By the way, I wrote it this way. He agreed to give his son all authority in heaven and earth to accomplish this purpose. Let's keep that in mind. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus to build his church. When that work is finished, he will take the whole thing and give it back up to the Father so that the Father may be all in all. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. So this authority is Jesus is from the father until he finishes his work and then he'll give it back up and then God will be all in all. That's the, the plan. He's just bringing all the fragments of the explosion of sin and bringing it all back together under God's sovereign rule. Beautiful thing. Anyway, he, g- he agreed to give his son all authority in heaven and earth to accomplish his purpose, including authority to pour out the Holy Spirit on his people <clears throat> to apply the son's work of redemption savingly um, and completely to them. So that's what the father did That and my friends, many other things. This is just an Acts class. You know, We're just going quickly through. So I only made six little things. But these are the basic elements of the father's role in the covenant of redemption. Uh, The son's role is he agreed to come into the world as a man and to live under the Mosaic law. He agreed to obey his father's commands perfectly, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. He agreed that he would gather for himself a people and protect them in order that none whom the father had given him would be lost. So Jesus agreed to do all that the father had committed into his hands. There was an agreement between the Father and the Son. And that agreement is the basis of your salvation. Jesus basically saying, I died for them, now you accept them. I died for them, now you forgive their sins and accept them and adopt them. And the Father has agreed to do that. Then there's the Holy Spirit's role. The Holy Spirit agreed to do the will of the Father and the Son. He agreed to empower the Son to do His earthly uh, uh, ministry of perfect living, <clears throat> he, uh, uh, perfect preaching and perfect mi- miracles. So we should not forget that it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus lived his perfect life. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me because uh, he says this, the power of the Lord has come upon me. And then you also see Jesus entering the desert to be tempted by the devil. And it says in Luke chapter 4, Then the Spirit led him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And then it says at the end of the tempting, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned. Isn't that a beautiful way to look on temptation? Wouldn't you love to enter every temptation filled with the Spirit and then leave it filled with the Spirit too? See, you may have entered some temptations filled with the Spirit, but you didn't leave them filled with the Spirit, okay? But Jesus entered and left every temptation filled with the Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he did it. Now, is it right to speak of this as a covenant? Again, just like the covenant of works, can we speak of this covenant of redemption? Uh, Well, first of all, it was something voluntarily undertaken by each member of the Trinity. None were under any obligation in the matter. They didn't have to do this, all right? But it is different than the covenant that God makes with man in that the persons of the Trinity enter into this covenant as complete equals. Uh, third, in covenants with man, the sovereign creator rules all and man is not as equal as we've mentioned. However, it is like the covenants that God makes with man in key elements. The parties are specified, the conditions are laid out, the promised blessings are there. I think the strongest evidence for the existence of this eternal covenant, the existence of the covenant redemption is in Hebrews 13, verse 20. There it's a benediction and it says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead Our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, my goodness. There's so much in those two verses. May he work in you what is pleasing to him. You should pray that for yourself. Pray it for each other. God, work in my spouse what is pleasing to you. Work in me. But notice the phrase he says at the beginning. May the God of peace. That's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God who threw the blood of the eternal covenant. What is that? What is the blood of the eternal covenant? Well, it is that one ultimate covenant, I think, of redemption. It is that that commitment that the Father made that if Jesus died, if he shed his blood, that those for whom he died, they would most certainly be saved. That is the blood of the eternal covenant. And look at that prefix, that that adjective, eternal covenant. What is the eternal covenant? Well, what I think is, not only does it reach forward to eternity future for us. I think it reached back to eternity past in the mind of God. God isn't just figuring this thing out, you know. He's not flying by the seat of his pants. He's not trying to figure out what to do. He wasn't shocked by what happened between Adam and and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He knew exactly what would happen. He had the eternal uh, covenant uh, worked out before then, covenant of uh, redemption. All right, now, uh, covenant of grace, and I was starting to talk about this a moment ago. Let me uh, restate what I was saying. The covenant of grace, Grudem organizes all of the other lesser covenants under this one title, covenant of grace, okay? Covenant of grace is basically how God deals with sinful humanity. He would put the covenant of Noah, the covenant with Abraham, covenant of circumcision. Um, he would put uh, the uh, covenant with Moses, Um, All of those Old Testament covenants, covenant with David, all of that under this and included in that is the new covenant in Christ's blood. All of the covenants that God has made with man through various stages, all of it is part of what he calls a covenant of grace. As I was starting to say at that time, but now it's appropriate. um, Some theologians will want to break out and say, all right, no, we've got the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. Uh, and a subset of that is what he does with Moses and all that. But I don't see it that way. I think that God was doing something to get people saved when he brought in the covenant of Moses. We're not saved by the covenant of Moses, but it does have a role to play in human salvation, doesn't it? Uh, it has a role to play in that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses, but also in that uh, and we'll see this in a minute, but the covenant of Moses brings us to Christ, doesn't it? When you read the Ten Commandments or the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors yourself, you know you need a Savior. If you understand the Mosaic Law, it brings you to Christ. It says in Romans 10 4, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So the law brings us to Christ, ultimately. So, therefore, I think it's appropriate to even put the Mosaic Covenant under this idea of a covenant of grace. All right, well, what do we mean by that? First of all, know that we need this, we need it done. If we're not going to be saved by grace, friends, we will not be saved at all. And don't think you would have done better than Adam in the covenant of works. Don't imagine, gee, I wish I had my crack at that tree. You know, I. no, you can't think like that. Adam represented us. We fell in him. So we are not going to get saved by the covenant of works. Some people say that the Mosaic covenant, the, the, basically the do's and don'ts, is a right way or a possible way of salvation. And I say, given original sin, it's impossible. It's literally impossible for us to be saved by the works of the law. And Paul says it by the works of the law, no one's going to be saved. No one. So we need the covenant of grace. Adam's failure makes this necessary. The fact that Adam failed in the covenant of works uh, means only by another covenant, that is of grace, can man be saved? Basically, in my opinion, I think the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward is the unfolding of the various forms of this covenant of grace. It's God's gracious stance toward a wicked, sinful race getting us saved. It's grace. Praise God for that. Aren't you glad the story didn't end there? Could have. Could have just ended right there. All of us lake of fire, angels and man alike. And then he and his other angels would just go on, etc. But God chose instead a plan of redemption, covenant of grace. Now, what are the various elements of the covenant? First, you've got the parties involved, God, and the people that God will redeem, And then the mediator between God and man, who we know is Christ Jesus. Those are the parties involved in the covenant of grace. The condition and requirements of participation are laid out as well. There uh, there is a condition of beginning and then a condition of continuing. The condition of beginning is faith in Christ the Redeemer. The condition of continuing is faith-filled obedience to God's commands. The two go together. And what I believe is that grace works so that we will obey God's commands and continue in the new covenant. All right? But let's talk about this first, the condition of beginning. Faith in Christ, the Redeemer. Romans 1.17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The condition of beginning is you need faith. You need faith in Christ, the Redeemer. Now you might ask, as many have, how do the Old Testament people get saved? How did Abraham get saved? How about Isaac and Jacob? What about uh, Moses and Joshua and all of those sinners in the Old Testament? What about David who committed that sin with Bathsheba? What about them? How do they get saved? Jesus hadn't even died yet. Some theologians will even say that the Old Testament saints were waiting in an anteroom until Jesus died on the cross for them. And then he led them into heaven. And they have some verses that seem to back it up. I don't think that that's the case. Um, I think the Mount of Transfiguration argues against that because Moses and Elijah, they're talking with Jesus and they look like they're doing just fine. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to think instead, like in Hebrews 12, there's heavenly Mount Zion and these disembodied spirits are up there just in fellowship with God waiting for their resurrection bodies. They're waiting for us to finish our race. And if we die before the race time is over, then we'll be waiting for the next generation to finish their race. And then all together, we will receive our glorified bodies at the at the end. All right. But uh, at any rate, how did they get saved then? Well, I believe Hebrews thirteen twenty tells us there is an eternal covenant. By the blood of the eternal covenant, they get saved. One covenant saves everybody. Let me say that again. One covenant saves everybody. Nobody gets to heaven except by the blood of Jesus, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all of them. They all get saved by the blood of Jesus, right? Well, did Abraham believe in Jesus Did he? Yes. Say yes. Yes, he did. Yes. Abraham believed in Jesus. Yes, he did. Okay. Uh, How do you know that? Well, Jesus told us. Remember in John chapter 8? Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Abraham didn't just believe in him. He rejoiced in thinking about his day. He was looking forward to seeing the day of Christ. Right? He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old said the Jews and you've seen Abraham tell you the truth before Abraham was born. I am now what's going on there. He's telling the Jews how father Abraham got saved. How did he get saved by believing in Jesus? Paul says it directly in Romans four and verse three. What shall we say that our forefather Abraham discovered in this matter? If in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. Do you remember that Genesis 15, looking up at the stars, "So shall your offspring be." His offspring, okay. Is he looking up at the stars? What are you thinking about? His offspring, okay. What's the outcome of all that? Just a huge number of Jews, two million plus, that are leaving. You know, in the time of Moses, no. Matthew 1:1, record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Who's the Son of Abraham? It's Jesus. So you say, well, how did Abraham know about Jesus? Let me ask you a question. How do you know about Jesus? How do you know about Jesus? He told us. What's another word for told? Revealed. Okay. Nobody knows about Jesus unless God the Father reveals it. It says in Matthew, Matthew 11, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him, right? You're not going to know anything except that it's revealed. Remember when um, Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that confession. And what did Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but what? by my father in heaven. Well, he's been revealing Jesus since the time of, of Abel. He revealed Jesus to Abel. Do you think he came and said, Abel, do you, you want to understand that animal you're sacrificing? Let me explain to you about the blood. And so he revealed Jesus to Abel. Abel was believing in Jesus when he sacrificed. Now, did he know everything about Jesus we do? I don't think so. I think they, even angels longed to look into those things. They didn't know fully what was going to happen. But he was trusting in Jesus who would come later, trusting in his son, in his descendant who would come later. And so there's a progressive revelation of Jesus as time goes on, and you must believe everything that's been revealed up to that point. In so doing, you're believing Jesus, believing Jesus, etc. But it's God the Father's revealing Jesus. Abraham believed in Jesus. What about? Yeah, go ahead.
0: That Galatians 3:16 says, now the made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to referring to many, but to one, and to your
1: offspring who is Christ.'" Amen. Amen. Galatians three sixteen, Yeah, it's talking directly about Christ. Beautiful. Uh, what about Moses? Did Moses believe in Jesus? Yes. Yes, he did. You know, he believed in him. One verse uh, that t- hints in this direction, if it doesn't openly say it, but John five forty six. if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. Well, you say, does that say that Moses believed in Jesus? Oh, come on now. Jesus is saying, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses believed me, right? He wrote about me. How did Moses write about Jesus? Oh, so many different ways. All the animal sacrificial commands were about Jesus. Uh, Moses wrote about Jesus. Over and over he did. Did Moses trust in Christ for his salvation? Yes, he did. He understood him. I believe it was Jesus that appeared to him in the flames of the burning bush after all, when he said, I am. So at any rate, uh, how about David? Did David believe in uh, in Jesus? Yes, he did. Because in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If then David calls him Lord, said Jesus, how can he be his son? Son of David. And yet he's David's Lord. We talked about this in my Sunday school class, and I've mentioned it to you many other times. David called his own son his Lord, he called his own descendant my Lord. How did he do that? Do you think he fully understood that? I don't think so. But he trusted in Jesus for his salvation. And frankly, that's the whole issue in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him in any way. How does David think he's going to get out of that situation with Bathsheba and Uriah? Only by the blood of the sacrifice by Jesus. He knew in Psalm 51 the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. So he's looking to something else. He's looking to Christ. David trusted in him as well. How about Isaiah? Isaiah, did Isaiah believe in Christ? Yes, he did. It says in John chapter 12, verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. When did Isaiah see Jesus' glory? Well, how about in the year that King Uzziah died? Did he see it then? I think he did. Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple. And didn't Isaiah write Isaiah 53? Didn't Isaiah n- understand about the suffering servant who would sprinkle many nations and the kings would put their trust in him? Isaiah wrote about the Christ. Over and over he wrote about the Christ. Isaiah saw Jesus. So what's my point? Everybody gets saved the same way. All of the brothers and sisters, before and after Christ, we all get saved the same way. How is that? By simple faith in Christ, by trusting in Jesus. It's an eternal covenant, covenant of grace. All right. Now, what are the, uh, the promises What is the promise of blessings in the covenant? What what do we get in the covenant of grace? What do we get? Eternal life. That's right. Uh, You know, like we already said, Revelation 21.3, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's what you get. You get eternity with God. And if you're a Christian, you're glad about that. (laughs) If you're not a Christian... Can I urge you that that's a good thing and think about it because it's it's good to be eternally with God. God is the source of all the beauty and good things there are in this world. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Wouldn't you rather go to the source of it than just experience the gifts? I'd rather know the gift giver, besides which I think you get it all anyway. It's like the one, you know, you hear the story about a, you know, a genie or whatever gives three wishes. Like I wish for infinite wishes, right? Well, I think if you go to the, the gift giver, you get the gifts plus everything else besides. We're going to get the ultimate source of the river of blessing that we see to a lesser degree through sin's corruption we see here in this world. God is the perfect source of all blessedness and happiness and we get him. He's what we get. That's what's uh, promised to us. Now, what is the sign of the covenant of grace? Well, it's varied over time. Rainbow was a sign, right? Still is, sign of the Noahic covenant. Every time you look at the rainbow... As a Christian, you can think about God's faithfulness to his covenant. He has never flooded the world universally again, and he never will. Not with water anyway. Um, so that's a sign. Um, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, uh, under the law, law of Moses, the sign of the beginning of the covenant relationship was what? What was the outward and visible sign of the, of the Mosaic covenant? Circumcision. What was the sign? That was the sign of beginning in the covenant. What was the sign of continuing in the covenant? Well, living the life of an obedient Jew. Passover, all the sacrifices, ceremonial laws, the dietary regulations. Those were signs. And that's what it calls circumcision in in, uh, in, uh, Romans chapter four. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision didn't make him righteous. He was righteous already, but it was a sign, an outward visible sign of it. The New Testament, what is the sign of the beginning in the covenant in the New Testament? What's the beginning sign? Baptism. Baptism. That's right. And the continuing sign, one could argue it would be the Lord's Supper as we continue to partake. I might also argue that it's just an ongoing life in the spirit, a life of personal holiness and obedience to the commands of God. That's an outward and visible sign that you're in the covenant as you're living a life of obedience to his commands. Okay. Now, why is it called the covenant of grace? Why the covenant of grace? Well, grace is God's commitment to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, despite the fact that we deserve condemnation. That's my personal definition of grace. I I try to get, whenever I, I give a definition of grace, I try to get positive infinity given to people who deserve negative infinity through Jesus Christ. That's my definition of grace, okay? So we get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, despite the fact we deserve eternal condemnation. That is grace. Isn't that wonderful? And it's all through Christ. So that's grace. Now, all of the aspects of God's positive dealings with his people over the span of time, I think, should be gathered under this covenant of grace. Was it grace to the human race to save Noah and his family? Yeah, it was. It was grace. It was, it was definitely grace. Was it grace to call Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees? Yeah, it was grace. All of his workings in redemptive history have been grace. It's been better than we deserved. He doesn't have any kind of redemptive history with the demons. No history going on with them. History of sin is all it is. And he's going to be, you know, judging every one of them for it. But for us, there's a marvelous and fascinating history of redemption going on. And all of its grace, isn't it? All of it. Uh, So there are many stages of it. Dispensationalists call it dispensations of it. But I just think it's different stages of the covenant of grace. But its ultimate intention is unchanging. And that is redemption of sinners into an eternal relationship with himself through Christ. Grace, we also call it the covenant of grace so that it definitely will happen. I like things to be guaranteed. Don't you want a guarantee? And Romans 4.16 says, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. So in Paul's logic there, uh, Romans 4.16, grace equals guarantee. If the covenant is not by grace, it is not guaranteed, friends. All right. So we are saved by grace so that we will definitely get saved. And that was the eternal redemption that God had planned, Father and Son. He wants us actually saved, not just theoretically saved. He wants us really saved. He wants us there. And so Jesus wants the same thing and says in John 17, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. What is he saying there? What, is, what does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is, I want these folks you gave me before the foundation of the world to be finally and in the end completely saved. I want that, and he's going to get it. He gets everything he asks for. He gets everything he asked for. You don't, and neither do I. But he gets everything he asked for. And so he gets all of uh, that the Father gives him by grace. Now, this is a good stopping point. Next time, God willing, we'll talk about the various stages and forms of the covenant of grace, uh, the history of covenants in the Old Testament. Any questions about covenants? Yes, go ahead. Not yeah uh, they, they, these are outward visible signs uh that's what paul call, calls it he received the sign of circumcision the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith god chose to change the sign and we can go into lots of discussion on why he chose circumcision as a sign in the old covenant i think it has to do with biological reproduction that's my opinion And and there's a physical people that are being procreated in the Old Testament, but none of them are, I mean, they are not as such guaranteed eternal salvation, but rather there's at a lower level something being acted out. That's the very point we've been making in Romans 9, 10, 11. Just because you were physically descended from Abraham didn't mean you're going to heaven. So there was a sign connected, in my opinion, with biological reproduction in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have a sign, a picture of cleansing of sin and of actual union with Christ. That's my guess on why he changed the signs. So back then, though, realize we are just talking about signs. The real righteousness was by faith always. You had to be like Father Abraham. You had to follow in the footsteps of the faith that your father Abraham had. You have to believe the promise, and it's credited to you as righteousness. But what sign do you get? Back then it was circumcision, then a life of obedience in the Mosaic. You can't, you can't be a believer in the Old Testament and throw off Moses. You can't. Jesus lived under the Mosaic commands. So, if you're at one of God's children back then, David even said in Psalm 51, I will not offer the blood of, of sacrifices for my sin. But once you cleanse me, then righteous sacrifice will be offered. So, I'll go ahead and keep doing it because you commanded me to do it. They were commanded to be done. So, my, my take is that the covenant of grace has always been the only thing that saves us. But at different times, God gave a different sign of what it meant to be under that. That's my take on it. So, there's a lot more we could say. Any more questions? Chris. We
0: just don't in the garden um, to be the judge of be able to protect uh, his wife and the garden from that uh, influence can you touch on that as far as practical application for, for us as Christians especially mm-hmm. as fathers and husbands and uh, again so that uh, we can kind of take from that uh, a renewed sense of our responsibility
1: yeah I, to me kind of unfolding Genesis 2.15 has been huge as a husband and a father to serve and protect you know, that's like the police motto, isn't it? Yeah, but that's that's what they do. It's like a lot of serve and protect right on the bed to serve and protect. Um, so what I think is that divine headship or headship in marriage is given to the man, to the husband, and then he, like Christ, then takes it and serves those that are committed to him, his wife, his children, so that like the garden, which cannot come to full fruition until there's a man to cultivate it, Right human to cultivate it specifically. Um, There are herbs and different kinds of plants. The seeds have been created, but until there's the right handling agriculturally, you're not going to get the full flowering. Um, And so he puts the man in the garden to work it so that it comes to its full potential. And that's the way I look at my stance toward my wife. I am to serve her so that she can be everything God wants her to be. All right, the second half is protect. He was supposed to stand there like the cherubim later did with the flashing sword. You're not getting past me. Um, he should have been that way. He should have stepped out in front when, when he, the devil starts negotiating with the wives, like step in between and say, no, this isn't going to happen. I know who you are. And once you start saying, did God really say and all that? I know, I, I know who you are. Uh, and you are what I was told to protect the garden from. Instead, what does he do? Nothing she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. I mean, when did he show up? I mean, we really don't know the big mystery. He just kind of is stealth husband there. And my feeling is we're called to be protection husband, not stealth husband, you know? Anyway, I, I don't mean anything negative. I'm just saying there's a passivity there that is, is really da- damaging. And if God had commanded him to protect and he didn't co- protect, then that was the first sin, wasn't it? Even before he bit. The first sin is he did not protect his wife in the garden from this encroaching evil. And how much evil came from that? Look around. Look at the corruption. Look at the pain and suffering and agony because he didn't do his job. So what does that say to me? Well, my stance uh, toward my family is serve. Help them to be everything that they can be. My stance toward the evil in the world is protect. You know, keep them safe from encroaching evil. It's a great question. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had tonight to study and really dig into some deep things in your word. Uh, thank you for our brothers um, like Wayne Grudem and people who have gone before us who have put thoughts together that we wouldn't have had if they hadn't done this kind of deep thinking. Lord, I pray that it might help us to live godly lives. Help us, all of us, to have a sense of incredible security in your covenant, in Christ, this eternal covenant, the blood of the eternal covenant, Hebrews 13, 20. Help us to stand in that. And the fact that we are eternally love gifts from the Father to the Son and that you will not stop, Heavenly Father, through the ministry of your Son until we are perfectly saved.
0: We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.